Well, last week we finished up our series on the Apostles' Creed that took us from September all the way through till now Advent. And it really does feel fitting that we are moving now into Advent. Alex used the book of Revelation to remind us of the tension that we live in, of this already, not yet, nature of God reigning with his people, which is very Advent-like. So for the uninitiated, uh, Advent is a season of waiting and expectation. It's a season of longing and yearning for Jesus, the Messiah's presence and peace to be made known on earth. It historically, back when it first started, um, and the date isn't quite known, but um, it, was, it historically held a dual meaning, meaning on one hand, we remembered the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, the birth of Christ. And on the other hand, it also uh, remembered the second coming, the culmination of Christ's, uh, of God's kingdom and presence on earth through Christ. This dual meaning of Advent might feel strange in a way because Christ has come. So what are we waiting for? And this again points us to this already but not yet nature of God's reign on earth, that as we await the return of Christ, the, the, the fullness of Christ's reigning on earth, we partake in the same act as ancient Israel did. And this is where today's passage, Psalm 80, comes into play. It's a communal psalm of lament. It's a psalm of longing for God to come and rescue his people, to restore them to some semblance of former glory. And based on several clues in this passage, it would seem that this particular psalm was written a number of centuries before the birth of Christ at the decline in Israel in the north and as trouble was starting to develop in Judah in the south. So would you pray with me as we prepare to read from the scriptures? Living God, help us to hear your word that we may truly understand that in understanding we may believe, and that in believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. Amen. Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that those all who pass by pick its grapes? 
Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire at the rebuke at your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. I recall a boy that I met uh, in the third grade when I was in the third grade, and his name was Christian, and he had just moved to Canada. Um, looking back, his family must have come over here as refugees, but I don't have, I didn't really have any mental category of that at the time. His family came from uh, the nation formerly known as Yugoslavia, which was the center of the Bosnian War in the 90s. And at the age of nine, I really had no concept. I knew about, you know, World War I and World War II, but I had no concept that there were people that across an ocean that were in war-torn lands like that. Christian described that his family, to go from, you know, one house down the street to go visit a friend or to visit family, that they would often have to avoid landmines. I thought he was exaggerating, but recently I was reminded of this memory and I, and I looked it up and sure enough, um, this area, the area that is now um, Bosnia and Herzegovina is still to this day one of the most populous uh, landmine locations on earth. It has taken over 25 years and the country is still not rid of them. This is one of my only first-hand experiences, at the time at least. It was my only first-hand experience with someone who came from a war-torn country. It's an odd memory that I think sticks with me to this day, 30 years later, 30-plus years later, for that reason. It's probably because in Canada, we know very little of wartime. We haven't seen, aside from maybe riots or protests or demonstrations, we haven't seen a full-on battle fought on Canadian soil since the late 1800s. So not in any of our lifetimes, I don't think. <laughs> so it may feel challenging for us to read a psalm about what is a violent conflict happening and to fully enter in, but I want us to try as best as we are able. So the scene here is that the nation of Israel to the north had been ransacked. Ten of the 12 tribes had dissipated, and all that remained were the tribes of Benjamin and the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. The situation is feeling particularly desperate for the people of God. What was once a united group of tribes that became known as Israel, there, there was a split. There was a split between Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and now Israel was in significant trouble with Judah not far behind. The walls were caving in both literally and metaphorically. 
So we're going to go through this passage, and I want us to do it with our minds and hearts kind of both engaging with this, because from a literary perspective, there's some really beautiful but tragic things happening here with, you know, just striking metaphors and imagery, but more than just kind of dispassionately admiring this, this psalm, I'd love us to enter at a heart level, an experiential level, if we're able Consider the tragedy that is unfolding here, that tribes have been ripped apart and forced into exile. Families have been separated and towns and villages have been ransacked. Death and destruction are all around. And unless we have lived in a war-torn country like my grade school classmates, or if, we served, if we've served in the armed forces in a war zone, I don't think most of us can comprehend in any real tangible way what is going on here, myself included. There are two facets to this psalm that I want us to explore and examine this morning. The first is how, we sit before, how do we sit before God in our grief? And secondly, how do we anticipate God's restoration? So the psalmist begins by crying out to God. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Hear us, he says. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us. The writer is seemingly trying to rouse God from a perceived sleep. Naturally, in times of desperation or pain, God's presence can feel far away. To think of God as asleep is our human way of crying out to God and saying, God, will you please do something? And the Psalms are littered with prayers like this. It would seem that God is more than okay with this kind of excess of boldness in our prayers. The writer also appeals to God's nature and God's status. God has been their shepherd he says, one who cares. A shepherd is one who cares, one who is attentive, one who is active and attentive to the needs of his sheep. God the shepherd is a God who is present. And God is also powerful and majestic. God is the king enthroned among angels. And the writer is appealing to what they know of God's presence as a shepherding God and God's power as other and holy. As the writer asks God to restore his people, he says, make your face shine on us. What does that remind us of? Benediction. We often hear this in our benediction. It's the priestly blessing from number six that we frequently use at the end of our services. These are the words that the minister of God's people is asked to pray over his congregation as a blessing as we depart. And this is a callback to that passage where God gives this uh, instruction to Aaron, the priest. In other words, the writer is asking God to bless, he's asking God to bless his people again because it is in God's restorative blessing that people are saved. 
The writer continues, how long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Such striking imagery here. God's anger smoldering. Um, It evokes a picture of an active volcano or perhaps a city in flames, which is maybe what the writer had in view. And it says, God's people ate and drank only their own tears. He says, the bread of tears, that's very striking and not very appealing, a, a soggy, salty loaf of bread. I'll take our little stale communion COVID wafers over that soggy tear bread, personally. (laughs) But how vivid is that? The bread of tears, drinking tears by the bowlful. The the Hebrew literally um, gives it a, a measurement, a quart of tears. Could you imagine how much you would have to cry to get a quart of tears? The immensity of their suffering is encapsulated in these images. They've also become the source of mocking or derision or ridicule by their neighbors and their enemies. Something made clear here is that God's people are recognizing their culpability or their guilt. Even as they cry out to God to act and move, there seems to be this recognition of sin. How long will your anger smolder, they ask. From other parts of the scripture, we know that God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love and grace. So God is not simply holding a grudge here. God's people have acted grievously and they know it. They, they, they recognize this. They have put their trust in wicked kings. They have worshipped foreign gods. They have neglected the poor, the widowed, the oppressed. And they are facing the natural consequences of their actions. But still, God's people know of his compassion and his grace. So they again invoke this priestly blessing. They say, restore us, make your face shine on us. The writer continues, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a ground for it and it took root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feast on it. And I don't know about you, but as I'm reading that, I can just, I can picture that. I can picture a crumbled wall next to a a vine, uh, a bunch of vines with fruit on it and just the elements just taking over. You can picture that. Using this metaphor of the grapevine, the psalmist recounts God's past faithfulness. God delivered them out of Egypt in this amazingly miraculous way. God planted them in this land that was promised to them generations prior. There was abundance and growth all the way from the Jordan River through to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's like the writer is asking, God, why did you do all this for us? You brought us this 
far only to leave us unprotected and vulnerable? Why would you do that? It's a fair question. Perhaps there's been times in your own life where you've been taken through an intense and challenging journey only to have more pain piled upon you. It's only natural to wonder, what's God doing here? What, what's happening here? Why does he seem to remain silent in the face of suffering, especially after bringing me through so much already? I know some of you in this room have been through this, even in this past year, where you've gotten through a monumental illness only to be greeted with more illness, to miraculously get through a financial hardship only to be met with a broken car or a broken refrigerator. And these situations I recognize might not seem as catastrophic as an entire nation crumbling, but for us, these situations can really break us, can't they? And the writer continues toward the end. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. And one last time, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. The writer continues with this vine imagery, calling upon God's strength, God's faithful promises, and God's compassion. Watch over this vine. You know, God, the vine that you planted, the vine that you watered and tended to and took care of and raised, God, watch over that vine. He's appealing to God's character as a faithful God, which I always find really interesting. It's as if the writer is saying to God, God, don't you remember who you are? I don't know about you, but I've, I feel like I've done that a few times as well. Like, God, remember that character trait? I thought that's who you were. It's a very human way of approaching an unchanging God when we don't understand the full picture of what's happening, when we, don't, when we can't understand, when something doesn't seem reasonable or fair, or when something feels maybe just too much or too harsh. We look to God's character and we say, hey, I thought you were supposed to be blank. Much of this imagery here is rife with allusions that might be familiar to us. Um, if, if we read some of the New Testament, there's you know, this vine metaphor and this language of the Son of Man. And while we as Christians believe all the scriptures point to Jesus, including this, this particular passage wasn't necessarily an explicit messianic reference. But looking back, we can see kind of the threads of this longing for God's imminent incarnational presence. They wanted to see God act and move. They wanted to see God tangibly at work. They wanted to experience relief from their pain and their suffering and their bondage. They wanted to know that God was truly near and among them. And the vine imagery reminds us, of course, of Jesus's words in John 15, where he says, abide with me and I with you. 
No doubt, Jesus had Psalm 80 in view as he spoke of God's people remaining intimately connected with God through Christ. And then at the very end, for a third time, he repeats this priestly blessing. You may know that repetition in the scriptures always means something and often holds great significance. And the fact that this psalm ends with a connection again to this priestly blessing from Numbers 6 should draw our attention. But there's a slight, but I think actually quite critical difference. There's, this is the only one of the three times where the writer invokes the word Lord. Lord, which translates to God's name, Yahweh. God's people calling God by name rather than just kind of the more generic God, Elohim, can signify a desire for closeness and a greater intimacy with God. I see a trajectory in this psalm. Movement toward oneness and wholeness and closeness with God, toward connection and presence with God. The writer of this psalm desires for God's people to experience that word that many of us have heard in, in Jewish context, the word shalom, peace with God, peace with one another. God's people in the ancient world were longing for God to be near to them. Many felt that God in this time of, of, their, uh, of, of their nation, that God was silent and he was distant and absent. They longed for the day for God to restore and to redeem his people. Maybe on this first Sunday of Advent, maybe you feel similarly. The reason I chose this passage, which I admit is a little bleak, for the beginning of Advent is that perhaps before we get to the part where we sing loudly and proudly, oh, come let us adore him, that we take stock of where we are with God. Kind of examine in our hearts, where are we at with God? One of the reasons I believe the God of the scriptures to be true is that God is not afraid of our doubts and our questions. In fact, He's not only not afraid of them, he's not afraid to put them literally in our holy scriptures. Sometimes I fear that we can sanitize and self-censor our thoughts and emotions, but especially these psalmists and the prophets were not afraid to lament and even to question God. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want to give us space to do exactly that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to list off a number of situations, everything dealing with you know, our own internal turmoil or conflicts, from down to dealing with maybe a specific event that's happening around our world, that there is so much going on both personally and around the globe for us to be anxious about or worried about and perhaps even looking to God saying, God, where are you in this? So I'm going to provide space for reflection. After each phrase, I'm going to pause and just allow you to sit and listen. If you feel like it's, it would be good for you, you can close your eyes. You can open your hands in, in receiving from God. Just do what you need to in this moment. So there are hardships and struggles around us in our community. There are many who have been sick. 
some who have been hospitalized, friends and family who have passed away. Lord, have mercy. Make your face shine on us. There are friends and family that some of us have all but lost due to intense radicalization and polarization of views on politics, on faith, on COVID, on social issues. Lord, have mercy. Make your face shine on us. There is immense violence around our globe, from the war in Ukraine to civil war and conflicts in Myanmar, Ethiopia, Yemen, Afghanistan, to warring cartels in Mexico, as well as countless other conflicts leading to death and violence around our globe. Lord, have mercy. Make your face shine on us. Inflation and recessions are impacting the most marginalized in Canada. Housing insecurity continues to be a challenge. There is much fear and anxiety about the lack of healthcare resources across our province and nation at the moment. There is much ex existential anxiety about the overall fragility of our society. Lord, have mercy. Make your face shine on us. Lastly, we admit our own fractured and divided hearts. We praise you and yet curse others with the same lips. We extend trust to you with our words, but not with our actions. Our vices are poisoning our hearts and polluting our minds. Lord, have mercy. Make your face shine upon us. There is much to lament and much to cry out to God over for those things that are totally and hopelessly out of our control, as well as for the things that are very much in our power to change. It is natural to despair and express grief and heartache to the world around us and the state, regarding the state of our own hearts and to admit that this is too much for me to bear. So I pose the question I asked earlier. How do we anticipate God's restoration? 
there are no five answers to this question. There's no like, you know, here's the five tips to, you know, receive from God's restoration. It's very simply, we continue to hope. We continue to be hope, a hope that can reassure both ourselves and others. We can make this hope tangible as well by meals for the hurting, generosity toward the poor, a peaceful and thoughtful presence where there is anger and hatred. The hope of Advent is that we do not remain in a dark place, though sometimes we remain there for a time. Dark nights of the soul, though, must eventually give way to daylight. Eventually, the days get longer. The sun becomes brighter. It is an inevitability, whether in this age or the age to come. Through the darkness, light pierces through. We go into Advent and Christmas each year, celebrating that Christ has come truly and fully, that light shone in darkness. God made his face shine on his people again. God responded to people's cries to save, to restore, and to redeem. And so we experience, we can experience God's salvation. We experience God's restoration. We experience God's redemption. And yet we participate in Advent each year in part as a reminder of this already not yet tension. We still long for the day when all will be made right. The brokenness of our own lives and the world around us creates this rift between what is and what is not yet or what will be. I want to close out our time this morning by reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which deals with these themes of light and darkness and death and life and our eternal everlasting hope. And Paul says it better than I ever could. So let's read this together. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, make his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death of death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose hearts. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.